the most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by writer George Saunders. He's the author of some of my favorite books, including A Swim in the Pond in the Rain, Lincoln and the Bardo, and 10th of December which was a finalist for the National Book Award back in 2013. He's also contributed to The New Yorker since 1992 and has been called the best short story writer in English by Time magazine. Last month, he published Liberation Day, his first short story collection in nine years. In true Saunders fashion, each piece contains a mix of humor, joy, and despair as he grapples with these big, timely ideas around oppression and revolution, free speech, and civil liberties. But beyond reflecting the politics of the moment, the book captures, as publisher Andy Ward writes, the way we lose sight of our humanity through little failures and compassion. And as we head into what I assume will be a very fraught election week here in America, it seemed like as good a time as any to examine those little failures and compassion as Saunders has done for the last 30 years on the page. Now, some of you may remember my first talk with George back in 2021. That episode focused a whole lot on his personal history, from his upbringing in Oak Forest, Illinois, to his years at the Syracuse Writing Program, where he met his mentor, Tobias Wolf and future wife, Paula Reddick. But this time around, I thought we'd do something a little bit different, something akin to auditing 
one of Saunders' creative writing classes at Syracuse, where he's taught since 1997. And so, with all that in mind, we discuss the intricacies of his writing process, how he goes about perfecting an ending, and ultimately, the nature of being an artist in these precarious political times. We also spend a whole lot of this episode talking through passages from Liberation Day, which you'll hear Saunders read throughout. If you're curious and want to check out some of the stories highlighted in this conversation, we've created a kind of cheat sheet on our website at talkeasypod.com. That's talkeasypod.com. And now, here's George Saunders. George Saunders, pleasure to have you. Pleasure to be here. Set the scene for the listeners. I requested this this six-foot divide because I'm going on tour. I feel like I'm applying for a job. <laughs> your table is big. I don't have a table. I feel like you're a little higher than me, which you're probably not. Well, it's not a contest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> per George's request, we're more than six feet away. Yes, I noted that, but I appreciate it. And it's, and it's actually really cozy in here. It's nice. It is a true honor to have you. How are you doing? I'm uh, kind of just starting to talk about this new book, which is always fun. You know, you finish it and then you just move on. And then I heard it on audiobook the other day. And it kind of was interesting to hear it and kind of like it. What did you like about it? You know, it's like uh, written by a pretty manic person with poor aim. You're describing it like it's a different human being. Well, it kind of, you know, that person is, is different. It's like the accumulation of different obsessive episodes from the last eight years and you put it together in a final obsessive episode. You know, at that point, I don't really know what it means at all. I just know that it's right. It should be that way. And you talk about it. And again, you hear it in an audiobook. It starts to kind of does feel like the work of somebody else, you know, but there's a feeling of like um, somebody really intensely trying to say something, but maybe being a little drunk or something, you know, and so the, the, <laughs> the, the good intention comes through and it's intense, you know, but I admire the the attempt. <laughs> the gumption. Yeah, the gumption, right. You said recently, in each book, I find out something new about where I was for the period of the writing. What did you find out about yourself in that period in which you wrote this book? So I think when I'm looking at the book now, it's shown me first that I was in over my head. I had this system of thought that you can sort of see in 10th of December, and then all this stuff happened. And so a lot of the subtext of the stories is somebody who doesn't, is on pretty firm ground, he thinks, but he isn't. On a more technical level, and this came a little bit out of that book that we talked about, that Russian uh, swimming upon in the rain. A lot of the stories, I think what they're doing, they're taking the reader on a certain trip. And the point of that trip is to show the reader how facilely she judges and then overturn the judgment, put her in a different place do it again and again until at the end, I think the result is kind of a, a state of like befuddlement, maybe happy befuddlement, but oh, wow, I didn't realize my mind did that. And I think I picked that up some from Chekhov and Gogol and those guys, you know. My model now is that you're a roller coaster designer. You're, I'm going ahead and I'm designing the first dip over and over for months until it's going to be really good. And I'm going to sort of know where you are at the end of that dip. Then I start designing the second one. Blah, blah, blah. In the end, the thing is just to put you through an experience rather than teach you something or have a, have a theme or whatever. You mentioned that this was produced somewhat in the lockdown. 
And the through line, if there is a through line in these short stories, is that someone is usually stuck in something. And then by the end of the story, or sometimes in the middle of the story, their conditions have radically changed. And I wondered if the book was in some way reflecting on the precarity and the impermanence of this moment that we're in. I hope so, but not by intention. You know, like as we talked about last time, I kind of just go into it with that roller coaster designer mind. Also, what you're describing is sort of what short stories do. They set you up in a certain place, relative stability. Oh, this world is like this. Mm -hmm. And then somebody throws a, you know, a rock through the window and the whole thing changes. And in some stories, it happens three or four times. Maybe we say that the story is a particularly good mode for right now. Because if you're thinking about change and even negative change, what do we do in the face of negative change? A short story, that's kind of the main question it's asking. You know, it's never, a short story is never a really cool, happy guy stayed cool and happy. So you start with the, the stasis, you know, it changes. And that teaches you something about the character, but it also teaches you something about your your mind observing them, I guess. You said it was a good form for right now. How do you see right now within that context? I think it's a kind of amazing moment of disruption because so many ideas, I'm going to be do a big generalization, but so many ideas that I think a lot of people felt were corrupt and had been around lazily for too long got overturned. So democracy is just what we, it's just the air we breathe. We're just good at it. Well, guess what? The whole idea of the American dream and that work hard, you'll be rewarded. At least at my age, you kind of go, wow, it's amazing how long those ideas were sort of under suspicion, but tolerated. And then suddenly, like it seems like within three or four years, they all get called into question. So this pandemic was a bit like you're on the back of a tiger and the tiger sleeps. So you don't even notice the tiger, but then it gets up and suddenly you go, oh shit, my tiger's walking, you know? And in truth, the story form is based on the tiger is always about to hop up and we don't know it. And so it kind of is the moment that the tiger leaps to its feet and throws you off. Well, I think you explore this very idea toward the end of your short story, Love Letter, which I thought maybe we start by reading from. Sure. So this is a, a grandfather who kind of was there during the, uh, the time when democracy crapped out. And he's kind of writing to his grandson to explain why. And his grandson has, has got some issues that he's trying to work through, whether he should be involved in like a counter-revolution or not, something mm -hmm. like that. Okay. Seen in retrospect, yes, I have regrets. There was a certain critical period. I see that now. During that period, your grandmother and I were working on every night a jigsaw puzzle each at that dining room table I know you know well. We were planning to have the kitchen redone. We're in the middle of having the walls out there in the yard rebuilt at great expense. I was experiencing the first intimations of the dental issues I know you've heard so much, perhaps too much, about. Every night as we sat across from each other doing those puzzles, from the TV in the next room blared this litany of things that had never before happened, that we could never have imagined happening, that were now happening. And the only response from the TV pundits was a wry satirical smugness that assumed, as we assumed, that those things could and would soon be undone and that, and that all would return to normal that some adult or adults would arrive as they had always arrived in the past to set things right. It did not seem, and please destroy this letter after you've read it, that someone so clownish could disrupt something so noble and time-tested and seemingly strong, something that had been with us literally every day of our lives. We had taken, in other words, a profound gift for granted, did not know the gift was a fluke, a chimera, 
a wonderful accident of consensus and mutual understanding. Because his destruction was emanating from such an inept source, who seemed, at that time, merely comically thuggish, who seemed to know so little about that which he was disrupting, and because life was going on, and because every day he, they, burst through some new gate of propriety, we soon found that no genuine outrage was available to us anymore. If you'll allow me a crude metaphor, as I'm sure you, King of Las Promas de Fartos, will, a guy comes into a dinner party, takes a dump on the rug in the living room, the guests get excited, yell out in protest, he takes a second dump, the guests feel, well, yelling didn't help, while some of them applaud his audacity. He takes a third dump on the table and still no one throws him out. At that point, this guy has become the limit in terms of future dumps. So, although your grandmother and I, during this critical period, often said, you know, someone should arrange a march, or those effing Republican senators, we soon grew weary of hearing ourselves saying those things, and to avoid being old people emptily repeating ourselves, stopped saying those things, and did our puzzles and so forth, waiting for the election. Uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> that push and pull between the grandfather and grandson as the grandfather is conflicted about his grandson getting sort of politically activated. Is that something you've felt in these last few years? No, not really. I mean, it's all sort of projective imagination. So you imagine, I don't have a grandchild, but I have daughters, so I imagine them. You fast forward 10 years, you imagine things worse. And then a lot of fiction for me is just saying, once I had a mild headache, okay, exaggerate that times 12. Mm. You've got a brain tumor, you know, and within the the sort of like tolerance of the form, you don't have to get it just right. Actually, you're just you're just saying, you're kind of saying to the reader, let's pretend that I have a brain tumor, and let's pretend it's sort of like a headache, and then they go, okay, sure, that's close enough. So in many ways, it starts from a very simple sort of mundane idea. I have a headache, and then you amplify it. Yeah, or you know, there's there's a great uh, Israeli writer named Edgar Carrot. I don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. read Yeah, and he came to Syracuse one time and he gave an incredible talk about growing up the child of two Holocaust survivors. And he basically said that he went to his dad one time and said, you know, dad, I know I could never understand your experience. And his father basically said, well, nonsense. You know, you, have you ever been hungry, scared, cold? And he said, yeah. He said, well, it's just more. It's just that, but more, you know? So I think that's kind of the essential creed of the fiction writers, you don't have to have done it, but you have to have had some inkling of it. And then you go, okay, well, if it was a different time or, or I was more sensitive person or I was, then you just go for it. And the great sort of forgiveness is that it doesn't have to be precise. I don't think fiction is there to kind of tell you exactly what somebody else's life is like. You know, you're making sort of placeholders in a certain way. I'm wondering how this may tie into this larger idea that's inside these stories, which is this investment in our own phenomena. What exactly did you mean by that, this investment in our own phenomena? I think what that means is, it's my paraphrase of a Buddhist idea, which is that you, you're born and you are too, and suddenly everything that's happening is happening for you, for your benefit. You're the center of this, this drama. And then as you get older, you just keep going, oh yeah, look, you know, the world is actually revolving around me and luckily I'm eternal and I'm the center of the story. And I think that's done by your thoughts and by your ruminative mind, you know, that is always saying, George has a new book out. Yes, I do. I'm so happy about it, you know. And 
So that's fun. You know, that's like, it's great fun. Or it can also be pretty miserable. George has hemorrhoids. That's not the best. That kind of thing. Is that true? No, that's a rumor, but it's not true. Yeah, I heard about that. So you're constantly constructing yourself with your thoughts. And that's fine. I mean, that's, you know, but then on the other hand, when you get sick or someone you love dies or whatever, then that accretion around the self is suddenly costly. So what I mean by, you know, investment in our own phenomena is I believe in my separateness and my importance. That's okay, but then there's a, there's a cost on the other side. Mm. So this liberation day for me, after I assigned the title, I was kind of like, yeah, well, what I'm, I think what it means is everybody wants to be free of the kind of moment by moment discomfort of life and the hurt and the you know the sorrow and all of that stuff ultimately comes from the fact that we really like ourselves and we believe in ourselves and that's the conundrum. This idea of the phenomena dropping away is something we discussed actually in our first conversation. And I thought maybe we uh, would take a listen for a second. After some years of living, we can all look back at our lives and realize that we have been different people at different moments. You know, the, the, the moment after somebody or something you love has died, there you are and the world seems a certain way. A moment six months later when that's faded and you're deeply involved in your business concerns, the mind is working differently. It's literally a different lens through which you're seeing the world. Okay, so that's great. I would actually, I think, I think I would prefer to be in the first state all the time. And if you could be in the first state all the time, the the state you're in after somebody died, for example, I think you're seeing the world more accurately. Why? Because this thing we call the self has actually dropped away. And the self, the way I understand it, is the thing that you make with your thoughts. Your, your conceptual planning, locating mind is working to make you central to the narrative. And although that's intelligent in a Darwinian sense, it actually isn't intelligent in an ultimate sense. So when that mind is working, you're actually kind of full of shit. You, you know, you're, you're, you're wrong about, about the truth of things. When that mind recedes, which it does in a time of loss, uh, say, uh, or if you're a good meditator, it recedes then. I think I just prefer that state. And maybe, maybe art is one of the ways that we simulate or, or stimulate ourselves into that state briefly. And the value of it then would just be, you know, it's reminding us that such a transformation is possible. What do you make of that? I pretty much agree with that guy. I'm consistent. You got to say that. The only thing I would add or note is that... We're doing revisions? Yeah, because it's a ni- it's true. But what I've noticed, I mean, to be frank, is I haven't done anything about that in the meantime. You know, like I'm still... <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's a, that's exactly right. Why don't you, you know? There's so many things in, in this kind of stuff we're talking about and also in writing. There's the knowledge about it and the kind of epigrammatic stuff. And there's the doing. And so I'm, I'm cringing a little bit at that because I, I agree with that. I would say the same thing today. And yet, you know, I'm somebody who, um, if you showed me how to fish for three minutes, I could really talk a good game about the meaning of fishing. But it, it doesn't mean I could fish. So I'm, I'm becoming a little more, as I'm getting older, I'm getting skeptical about my own, you know, I, I give pretty good advice, I think, or what sounds like good advice. And, but, you know, at some point it's just talk. And the only thing I, I think... I've gotten better at his writing. If the writing is a thing you've gotten better at, why don't we dive into some more of it? In that clip, you talk about how through writing, you can achieve that kind of honesty and clarity that one sometimes feels in the aftermath of a death, for example. It's a baby version a baby of version. that. You know? And for me, what it means, practically speaking, is just that for some portion of the three hours I'm writing, 
my mind stops yapping. You know, there's not so much rumination. And it's really like I'm just concentrating on this sentence to, to make it better. Almost like if you were, I suppose, a plumber or a rock climber, you're just concentrating on the thing so your monkey mind gets quiet and that's good. Well, so I want to get into what is the result of a three-hour dive that you've had. Before I do that, you mentioned earlier how this was your first collection in nine years. In the intervening time, you've said, I've come to think that these days we judge too harshly and too quickly. And that one of the things fiction can do for us is impose on us as we read a sort of enforced suspension of judgment. What do you mean by that, an enforced suspension of judgment? Okay, so in the simple form, I say, uh, once upon a time, there was an incredibly graceful man. And then you go, okay. And then two minutes later, he stumbles. Suddenly, I still accept the first statement. He's incredibly graceful, and he stumbled. That's already a more interesting guy than the one who never stumbled. So your judgment said, oh, wow, incredibly graceful. That's awesome. You know, and then I said, however, and introduced the second thing. So we talked last time, I think, maybe about the story Gooseberries, that Chekhov story. And uh, in there, you know, he has a guy make this beautiful speech about how the urge to make yourself happy is kind of decadent, especially when so many people are unhappy. And also when your happiness might be built on the necessity of their unhappiness. And so as a reader, you're like, oh God, that's so true. That's original. I've had that thought, but also, yeah, wow. Then Chekhov runs around and shows that same guy in a state of complete self-absorbed happiness when he's swimming in this pond. And so Chekhov just lets those two things sit there. So you're immediately wondering about your judgment. Am I supposed to believe A or B? My contention is that that right there is the gold. When you go, oh, I don't know. Again, I'm in this thing of talking about the roller coaster designer, but if, if you get off a roller coaster in that first minute, you're not going, oh, you know, that second hill seemed to be at the same angle as the Pyramid of Cheops. I mean, you're just <laughs> like, fuck. And so that little three second stun period is actually why you're there. And now you might talk about it on the way to the car. You might say, oh, that was really, but I like the idea that you're trying to stun yourself in the writing and the reader into something like, I don't know, it's a falling away of something. I'm not quite sure what. It's a moment of astonishment. Yeah, that's it. It's funny when you start talking about stuff, it's kind of hard to make the case for the value of astonishment, but you couldn't live a day without it, really. Well, you hope to never live a day without it. Yeah, and you do. But, but I think, you know, then you can kind of break down the concept of astonishment, which is, to me, it has something to do with what we're talking about, this loss of judgment, which is also maybe it's like all those selves that you are kind of pull back and go, whoa, you know, just for a split second. What keeps me coming back to reading is that then you have the memory of that person. You're not always that person who, in mm. the moment that you finish something, but you have the memory that that person exists. So it's sort of like when we were kids and in, in I was a Catholic, a Catholic kid and some really cool shit would happen in church, you know, like for me internally. And then when I would come out, I would remember later that it was powerful, you know? So even if you were not in that mode, you could remember that such a state was possible. Also, some other things that I think were probably somewhat like writing, because sitting there for hours on end, and then it got real quiet, and outside and inside, real quiet. And then um, there'd be a little narration from the priest about this or that, and then your mind would start working on it. So I can see you're skeptical. I can, I can see it from across the room. <laughs> you're right. My Catholic experience was, let's say, lackluster. Let's try to practice that suspension of judgment for a second and dive into the titular story of this new book, Liberation Day. To set the scene, inside this world you've created, there exists a three-story high speaking wall where humans 
opinion against their will, and directed by a hobbyist to perform historical reenactments. With this passage, one of the pinion people is explaining his devotion to this craft, the dramaturgy that goes into it. Am I missing anything? No, that was perfect. What I have found, the more I live in my mind beforehand within my topic, the better my flow will be once I begin. Mr. Yu calls it priming the pump. All day I prime my pump, getting to know my city better by thinking about it. It is a sad city, yes, for that is in the settings, but I imagine a livelier quarter of the city where all the city's celebration occurs over there on a small island that may only be reached via canoe. A small fleet waits at a common pier. What color are the canoes? Have they drivers? What is the direction of the current as the drivers propel their canoes across the bay to the Isle of Celebration? Are there fireworks which light up the faces of the shopkeepers and workers who have scrimped and saved to celebrate there so that they may, for at least this one night, leave their sadness behind? The fireworks must, I imagine, be reflected, rippling, in the shallow water lapping in the narrow inlets that punctuate the island, along which orange-brown cafes are nestled, strung with tiny lights, lights that bob with any slight breeze there in the cafes that nightly ring with the sound of the laughter of those relieved to find themselves made briefly joyful. In this way, all day, while Lauren and Craig nap, I prime my pump. Lauren wakes, gives me a look as in, Jeremy, wait, are you priming your pump? My look in return says, I am. Is that an issue? Lauren and Craig feel that I am strange, too sensitive. I fall under the sway of the settings, it is true, with greater alacrity than they. Always have. Well, I love my work. I aspire to always be feeling more, thus speaking with more gusto, thus evoking greater emotion and engagement in my listeners. This is what I feel makes me unique among the three of us. You look up at me after you're done reading with a sort of like, is it okay? Yeah. Did I do it right? And I keep thinking... He's not doing it right. <laughs> no, it's the opposite. But I, but I can't compliment you too much. No, I'm, I'm blown away. This idea of priming your pump. Well, for one, it sounds extremely sexual. Are you aware of this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he's not, but I, but I was. You, okay. But the actual idea of it is to pour over the material in the mind before performance. And I wondered, could this description double for your own writing process? Yeah, 100%. I'm always priming my pump. But, yeah, but, but in that, actually in that part I read, that's, I'm sort of demonstrating it because in this world, at least at this stage in the story, it's almost like he gets a little boost in his verbal abilities from this, this uh, thing that they've done to his brain. So if you tell him your topic is city, he can kind of riff basically at a pretty high register. And what he's found is if he prepares a little bit and he kind of rewrites basically, then when he riffs, he's going to have more to say. So that is exactly like what you're doing in revision. You know, so when I wrote that, I remember thinking, okay, city, I'm going to sort of demonstrate in this paragraph what he does, which is by adding clauses and specificity, he's going to build a city out in his mind. And then once he builds it, then later that night when he has to perform it, he sort of has that. So it's totally, yeah, totally analogous. You know, right before you read that story, you said, I can see you're skeptical about the church. It wasn't skepticism. Hmm. I was smiling because that image of you as a young boy sitting in the church, silently taking in the vastness that is around you, it reminded me of 
this passage of having to quietly build the story in your mind before performing it. And that was what my smile was about. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's And actually, as you were, as we were joking about that, I remembered that, well, and maybe this has to do with me turning to you after the reading. My first gig was I was a reader at the Catholic Church in our town. First of all, we got to get out of class early. This was for the weekday mass. Uh, you were sort of ritually excused, and it was kind of like, oh, well, I have to go to church business, you know, and you get up and left. And then you met the priest, and he would make kind of a big deal of, there's these, there was this big, huge uh, Bible with a lot of beautiful colored, like, place markers and stuff, and he would show you what you were to read. And I think you had to sort of read it once to make sure you could pronounce it. And then you got to go up to the mic, and it was a pretty nice mic, and it was a podium. And that feeling of reading in that reverberating room and then reading a really good text. I mean, those are well-written, you know? And I remember that feeling of like, when you would get it right, even the bad kids would kind of like, oh, you know? So I was that was a pretty, in retrospect, a pretty formative thing to say, these words have power, they can come through me and they can, they can actually make a, a ripple. And that was at what age? 11, 12. It was the first uh, book reading you did. Truly, and I laugh sometimes because I didn't. I never thought of it until a couple of years ago, and it's exactly the same feeling. Putting a pause on the conversation, we'll be right back with author George Saunders. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. 
This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month. Less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. In regards to this priming the pump way of working, I'm not even going to make the joke this time. (laughs) Why don't we talk about this story of yours called Elliot Spencer, which exists in a kind of dystopia that I think the last piece also did. Here, our 89-year-old protagonist finds himself brainwashed, his memory scrapped, a victim of a scheme in which poor, vulnerable people are reprogrammed and deployed as political protesters. Before we read a passage from it, where did this emerge from? I'm sort of like a little bit embarrassed to admit it, but for me, when I'm like, when I don't have a story, I'm always just like, well, is there any voice you'd like to do? Is there just like, almost it's like at the back of your throat or in your chest, like, I, I feel like saying something. It's almost like if somebody, you know, puts you in front of an empty auditorium with a microphone, what would you like to sound like, sort of, right. you know? And the goal, I think, is to find something that's a little bit, well, one, it's got to be kind of a deep well. You have to be able to do it for a while. Two, with me, it's that you're not quite sure where it's coming from. So you haven't overdetermined it in that way. And can you do it? Can you do it day after day? You know, and then behind that, there's a little hope that as you're doing it day after day, it might have a little room to develop, you know, it might get a little mm-hmm. richer. And at the time I was also, I think related to meditation, I was thinking, you know, like, well, so is the goal to have zero thoughts, which you sometimes hear. And I think that's not actually the goal, but, but sometimes there've been times when I thought it was. So when you're meditating, you get your thoughts to zero. And that's always seemed like a positive goal. But then I thought, well, well, if you literally could do that, if you could take the operating system that is your brain and leave it functional, but take out all the data. And I think I was thinking, well, you'd also take out, you know, the words and the concepts, but also the habits. So if I'm a slightly 
whatever, fearful person, also whatever causes that is gonna get plucked out. Then if you turn the system on again and let the person be in the world, would they become what they were? Or does the you know the operating system somehow do something different? Does it revert back to factory settings? Right, exactly, yeah. So that was just a, a thought. And then I thought, oh, that would be fun to try to sound like that guy. Sound like the guy who's just been t- returned to factory settings. And then I was like, well, actually, I have no idea because he wouldn't have language. Okay, so let's give him somebody who's teaching him language. So at that point, it's just like, oh yeah, that'd be fun. I don't really know how he would sound, but he wouldn't sound boring. So let's try it. Well, why don't we take a listen for a second? Sure. This is a scene towards the end of the story in which Elliot is about to be reset, so to speak. And the pieces of his life begin to come back to him in flashes. Ma, holding picnic basket, rushes over, whacks me with basket. I laugh and laugh, and Ruth is there. (laughs) Ruth, I recall you. Oh, pretty Ruth, lies at base of tree. I just have amblotum, have just knocked Ruth right. Ruth on ground, holding stuffed bear I gave her. You break my heart, Elliot. I wouldn't marry you if you were the last. Ma, El, sweet Jesus, you drink and drink and do such crazy... Grab bear from Ruth. Throw bear on grill. Bear burning. Ring I bought Ruth. Still taped to paw. Look at you, idiot, Ma says. Is that who you are? Give me those goddamn keys. Go out gate to my Electra. Brand new Electra. Ma drops gray head so sad. Helps Ruth up. Blink. Little sick recalling that. No. If I could go back in yard... Would take bear from fire, pull ring off bear, give ring to Ruth, saying, Ruth, sorry, let us love each other forever. But Ruth married Philip, moved far away. I recall, I now recall. If Ruth not gone, ma not death, I would say, Ruth, ma, the me I was then is not the only me I may ever. There is a me under that me who yet wishes to do lovely in this Magnificent. Watch, Ruth. Watch, Ma. This new me, in what time he has left, will try. I go through gate using both hands. I'm out of yard into, ah, I now recall it, lot. Vacant lot. Never have I been so alone with myself while outside. Knees hurt. No spring chicken. When will I death? Might I death alone? Probably yes. A little scared about that. I must say, but I'm not death yet, not dead yet, not yet, and not yet. World lays out before me new with each click of step and swish of aspen leaves above. For that I say thanks, for as long as world is shiny new, there is no death. And what lovely may I not yet do? Here is cactus, word I know from long ago, cartoons, watch with ma. These west trees I know like snap, are not my old east trees that I knew by heart. Sycamore, Dogwood Beach. I do not as yet know west trees' names, western trees' names, but will, will soon, can learn. I'm learning all the time. No night, star, moon. No walk, no hide. No path. And a little bit smiling, take it. There's so many parts of what you just read that I found um, fascinating. But as I was 
preparing for this conversation, pouring over those last few paragraphs specifically, I noticed in the version I received over the summer that the ending is different. The last paragraph you just read is actually the third to last paragraph in my version. And I was thinking about that revision process as I have it here in in sort of real time. There was just a place late in the game where I was reading the manuscript and something just, you know, sometimes like when you get really in touch with it, you just feel like, I don't know, it's okay. Yeah, it's, it's, if I can't do anything better, that's good enough. But you just feel a little bit of a potential for something better. What do you think it does? You know, I actually, I have to kind of remember what it was before. Here. Yeah, throw that over here. Let's see. No, no, that's that's exactly right. I, I thought, um, no, okay. Th- actually, this ending that I just read is more like the New Yorker ending because it ends with that take it, which I really liked. And so when I read this in manuscript after the galley went out, somehow this ending felt a little mushier somehow. So I moved this up. And I kind of inverted the two, the two things, I think. Can you read that last paragraph on my version? Yeah. Not dead yet. Not yet. Not yet. And not yet. World still lays out before me new with each click of step and swish of aspen leaves above. And for that, I say thanks. For as long as this world is shining new, there is no death. And what lovely may I not yet do? It's a more sentimental ending. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it is. And, you know, it's funny how just I didn't cut it. I moved it up. So that's his first pass at it. And then the second pass is the other thing. Yeah, that's interesting. I love those kind of micro decisions because they're like, who knows? And yet, however micro it seems in the moment, it completely changes that feeling you walk away with at the end. That's a beautiful thing because, you know, that's the, the real article of faith is that those kind of changes matter. And sometimes when you're working on it, it's hard to believe. But I think that's, that's really true, you know. And I think you're exactly right. It felt a little bit like an uplift at the end. It wasn't quite in keeping with where he's going, actually. Maybe something like that. So sentimental. As we get to the end of you and I talking, I, I'm thinking about endings, and I can't shake the last story in the book. Now, as I understand it, this piece was sent to the publisher after you had already finished the book. You sent it as a, hey, here's one more I've been working on. What do you think kind of thing? Is that right? Yeah. That's right. When I got the stories in about the right order and you read through them, there's just a feeling like one of your feet is still up in the air. Like, ah, yeah, yeah. So it was going to end on that Elliot Spencer. It's, you know, not bad, but something, I just felt like there's one more little, you know, breath in it. And so um, I've been kind of carrying that idea around or the seed of it for a long time. And I thought, what the hell, you know, you're, you're 63. Maybe you can do it quick. So I did it in about five days and it felt really like it was just the, uh, Almost like reading the book had wound up my subconscious, and then it said, I've got one more thing, and it just kind of came out. The energy of the other eight stories had produced this final one. Exactly. So what was the seed? During the pandemic, we rented a house up in Cherry Valley, New York, which is near Cooperstown. And outside of town, there was this big yellow house that looked like it was maybe built in the, in the early part of the 19th century, like really sprawling, you know, beautiful. Something in that, like, yeah, that's where I, I should get old there. That would be cool. All the grandkids could run around the lawn. It was just very kind of palatial, you know? So in that, I was driving somewhere and I just thought of buying that house, basically. And kind of like, what a weird moment that is when you're buying a house from somebody and it's like kind of like you're exchanging this really intimate thing and you're supposed to kind of pretend that you don't care. But in this story, both men really love this house. And then 
I just imagined this thing going wrong the, as it does in the story. So I just held that for about a year in my mind, like, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of Chekhovian, that little misunderstanding that they have. And then when I decided to write this last story, I said, okay, just quickly put that in a matrix of some stuff. So one man, the homeowner, has had this place for a long time. His wife has recently grown ill. They're in need of money. And so he's put it on the market. It's been on the market for about two years. This other man is the first potential buyer that he's considered. Said buyer goes to the old home. They have a cordial exchange that then grows into something actually more familial, like, oh, we could be friends, maybe in another lifetime. Then towards the end of their discussion, there's a breaking point where homeowner at least says to himself, I'm not selling it to this fucking guy. In turn, which is where we're going to enter, potential buyer has written a series of letters to homeowner. And uh, they start very nice. And then they become increasingly unkind. Why don't we start with uh, the fourth one? A fourth letter. You'll die. I'll get the house. Trust me. Why not sell now? Use the money to live a better life than the tormented one it would appear you are living, sitting up there lonely and bitter, letting that beautiful place, a place you loved, a place the two of you loved, go to seed. Shame on you. I hope you're enjoying the fruits of your arrogance, you stubborn, mean-spirited old bastard. That one, to my credit, I never sent. I wadded it up, burned it over the stove. I had fallen ill. I am ill now. My time is short. I burned that letter to prepare myself to face what is coming with as pure a heart as I can manage. I need to write another. Of course, I know that, if only for my own benefit. I am truly sorry it will begin. Sorry for my part in this. What did you deny me, really, after all? A beautiful year or so in a lovely place. They would have made me happy. But what is it, a year in the grand scheme? Nothing. What are ten years, a hundred, a thousand? I am going, friend. I am all but gone. I believe you prideful and wrong, but I have no desire now to cure you. Your wrongness was an idea I had. I am all but gone. My idea of your wrongness will go with me. Your rightness is an idea you are having. It will go with you. For all of that, I hope you live forever. And if the place falls down around you, as it seems to be doing, I hope even that brings you joy. It was always falling down around you. Everything has always been falling down around us. Only we were too alive to notice. I feel the truth of this in my body now. I'm trying not to be terrified, but I am sometimes in the night. If you are a praying man, pray for me, friend. Friend who might have been friend who should have been. That letter exists in my mind, but I'm too tired to write it. Well, that's not true. I'm not too tired. I'm just not ready. The surge of pride in life and self is still too strong in me, but I will get there. I will. I will write it yet. Only I must not wait too long. Yeah. This story for me, it was fun because it, it's a little bit Chekhovian. It's just five pages and it's only, you know, a lot of times my tendency is to have an explosion at the end or a death or something like that. And this is just a little tiny thing, you know, that it's almost funny what these two guys go through, you know, and it's, it's kind of inexplicable. But I'm kind of interested in the idea that you could illustrate those failures of compassion in kind of small ways. It doesn't have to be you know, grandiose. But that story took a turn there at the end. I carried that nugget around for all that time, but I didn't know how to get out of the story. And so one day I'm just looking at what I've done so far. And uh, 
it's kind of corny, but something just happens. Something takes over. That to me is the biggest thrill when you don't, no way that I see that kind of ending coming. And then it came very naturally and it was fun. And when I stepped back, I, the first time I read it, I was really moved by it and thought that's pretty much what I believe, you know, but it was a blurt, you know, I blurted that out. Mm. Uh, so that's really why I keep doing it. It's just so fun, you know, to be temporarily briefly smarter than you are and to, and to get a look into your own heart by blurting something out is really great. It was always falling down around you. You're right. Everything has always been falling down around us, only we were too alive to notice. It's funny, we started this conversation by talking about the sort of precarious ground that we're standing on right now and these sort of large assumptions that we made about our place in the world, democracy, whether the world will even be around 50 years from now. And to read that line, only we were too alive to notice. Yeah, it's, it's th th this book, I kind of felt like there was uh, some kind of connection between the, the immediate, which is, okay, things are falling apart. How kind of sad that is. And, you know, and then also that even if we backed up to whenever we thought it wasn't falling apart, it, it actually was. So, you know, in that sense, this may be a little bit Pollyannish. I felt this in the early days of the pandemic. It's kind of a gift to have your ass kicked a little bit by the world because the world is just saying, you are totally temporary. Everything you believe in is temporary. And it's saying it now so emphatically that we can't deny it, you know. Mm -hmm. And for me, I hope that, I mean, if it does go back to quote unquote normal, you know, I'd like to think I retain some some of that. Like, yeah, that was just, you know, the world came alive and had a, a wrathful aspect to it for a few years, but it always does actually, you know. It always has a wrathful aspect and a joyful aspect. And we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that it's ever gonna be just one or the other, I guess. You know, I was, um preparing for this, and I thought reading from that last chapter is the natural point to end our conversation. But then, kind of in the spirit of revision, I changed a couple things around, and I feel like there's one last place we have to go before we stop talking. In a recent substack of yours, you wrote, I'm at a point in life where I'm finding I really value a story that authentically praises the good. I feel this to be somehow a higher order artistic accomplishment. The French writer de Montirlant claimed that happiness writes in white ink on a white page. And if we could, I thought we would read from a passage written maybe in white ink on a white page from the titular story, Liberation Day. This book, of course, is dedicated to your wife, Paula, who you've been with ever since that creative writing program at Syracuse back in 1986. And uh, as I read this passage, I thought, I wonder what she thought of this. Every man, I whisper, is born with a certain store of desire. It is a treasure he has been bequeathed that he must spend wisely over the course of his life. One moves through the world finding objects on which to expend it. Blessed is he who finds a worthy object shaped by God provided fortuitously unto him that elicits his longing so strongly that all else briefly recedes and he becomes pure desire. Then, wonder of wonders, that which he desires, embodied, may become pure desire herself, desiring him. Here is what I wish to say, dearest one, trapped as I am on this desolate, godless hillside surrounded by demons who wish to destroy me. Because I have known such a moment with you, 
the firelight playing across the walls, the dog asleep against the door, the bed shifting beneath us as if making approving commentary in its own unique language. I may die now if I must die, knowing I have truly lived. You bastard. (laughs) That's the highest praise. When you finished 10th of December, the first person you gave it to was Paula. You asked her for some feedback. As you asked her, you had to go out for some reason or another. Then you came back home. And when you came back home, there was a note on the book. And it said from her, Tears, send it out. And as you read that last bit, I couldn't help but think about the love you two have, have had since 1986. And what it evokes in you reading it now. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's really deep, you know? It's like all the things that they make you say at the altar, that's actually what it is. It's sickness and health and better and worse and all that. And there's something about, for us, you know, to just endure, enduring or, you know, or, or kind of sticking with, abiding, you know, it opens up a lot of doors that you learn so much about the person. And, you know, so I, I'm grateful. And I think really the funny thing is it just, when we first met, we got engaged in three weeks, which is kind of a, a record for the Syracuse MFA program, I think, so far. And it was just, inter- I was so interested in her. Couldn't quite figure her out. And that has just, that's been true to this day. No matter what weather it is, I'm interested in what she has to say. And the idea of writing something she'll like is still a really, really big motivator for me. What did she say about that? She hasn't read it yet, actually. It's kind of a running joke because she's working on a beautiful book of her own. So I'm like, yeah, don't read it. Don't, don't worry. So it's almost like I'm waiting for her to read that passage. So <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah. You call me up. Yeah. <laughs> Honey, I have to call Sam. We've only met once, but he needs yeah. to know your reaction. <laughs> you know, it's a great thing being married to a writer because they get it. She saved me so many times because her way of reading a story is um, like my deepest way, which is you read it and if it moves you, it's good. And if it doesn't, you got to figure it out. She's an incredibly honest person. So if it doesn't move her, she can't, she has no interest in faking it. And then you just go back to the drawing board, muttering, you know, but, but knowing that she's right. My last question, it's kind of an epilogue. On the subject of writing, I was going to ask you at 63, what compels you to keep doing this, to sit there painfully, sit there, try to produce something on a blank page. And then I remembered that you and I discussed this very thing at the beginning of 2021. So why don't we take a listen? When you really get down to it and ask, why would someone read a short story or write one? It's all about the micro fluctuations of the mind. You know, you, you start a story with nothing in mind, you pick it up and suddenly there's Scrooge or whoever, you know? And then when you come out, when you get spit out the other end of a good story, you're in a different state, you know? And the same is true of a song or a, a whatever. You're in a different state. If you think that different state is preferable, then that's proof of concept, you know? It, it doesn't last forever. It lasts, you know, maybe, what, half an hour? I don't know. But it's, I, I kind of feel like at this stage of my life, I'm like, well, that's better than nothing, you know? It's better than not. Yeah, I, I like that idea of alteration. You, you come in in one state and go out in another. It occurs to me that the reason I'm still interested in it is that to have written a book and surprise yourself in the process, that's so fun, you know, to, to say, oh, I wasn't done after all. There's still other selves to come forward. When I was younger, I think there was a more complicated matrix of motivation. There was, 
you know, ambition for sure, earning a living, a lot, all that kind of stuff. And now it's, it's more like the form is really, I wouldn't say it's taunting me, but I'm, I realized how little I've done in it and how vast it is. So I'm kind of like, oh God, you got a little bit of talent. You were slow to start using it. And now you've got some number of years left. So hurry up because there's new places to go. Just the idea of spending the next year popping out new kinds of stories, that really makes me happy. Is that what you see when you look ahead? Yeah, I mean, that, and on one level, that's kind of good and kind of bad because, okay, then just fast forward, I'm 96. Hey, had 18 more stories. Whoops, he's dead. Not the greatest, you know. So there's another level for me which has to do with, also has to do with alteration. And can I actually become a more relaxed, generous, loving person. Those are kind of the three things. I always had this idea that someday I'll do a big retreat or I'll get back to meditating more regularly. But I tend to not, you know, since the last time we talked, that hasn't, that strangely hasn't happened. So I don't know. It's on my mind, you know, that left to my own devices, I'm a pretty productive, pretty anxious, semi-loving person. <laughs> and that's not probably going to be good enough. You know, at some point that's going to that's gonna wear thin. So that's on my list. <laughs> You're all these people at once. Yeah. A certain person is dominating at a given moment. And I mean, to me, it's a thrilling idea that you could change that. You could somehow do certain things and then a different aspect of yourself would be dominant. And the weird thing is just thinking back on like, for example, the time I was the biggest mess versus the time I felt the very, very best. The weird thing is the world changes around that person. And because that's the state of your mind that's different, the world coming in is actually processed differently. So it's an incredible opportunity. And I kind of kick myself because I don't know why I don't feel that more urgently. More urgently now that you're 63. Yeah, that's pretty old. You know, you should, <laughs> by then you should have the fire lit under your ass, which I kind of do, but, but it's just, you know, kind of interesting. At the end of that clip, you talked about the power of art being that uh, if it works, you leave it on the other side just slightly different. You enter a different kind of state. And I have to say, having read every page of this book, I left it feeling just like that in, in a different state. How would you characterize a different state? I'd characterize it in the exact same way we characterized it earlier, which was when something horrible happens, like a death, or something great happens like a job promotion, these big things sort of snap you out of the quotidian, like a snow globe, whatever, it jostles you around a little bit, and it makes you actually look around with the fresh set of eyes. The same way you do walking out of a movie theater when the movie is good. You ever notice that? Like, you go into the theater in a certain way, you walk out, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, even the not-so-interesting restaurant that is in front of me has a glimmer to it. Yeah, I always kind of think like, oh, gosh, you know, after a good work of art, the birds matter more. Those are kind of like story birds or something. Yeah, that's beautiful. Everything else that's not me, everything else that's not the neurotic person that you are, that I obviously am, that falls away, you know, and then it doesn't. But you know it can. That's, yeah. Well, thanks for that. That's beautiful. I have felt the same way in this conversation now uh, as we have to leave it. Sorry, we have to, we can stay another couple hours. And <laughs> get, get, get. I, I really love being with you. you got an incredible mind. George Saunders, the pleasure has been all mine. No, it has not, but thank you so much. Much love. Thank you.
And that's our show. If you enjoyed today's conversation with George Saunders, we'd really appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple, Spotify, wherever you do your listening. I know it's silly and seemingly antiquated in 2022, but it is still the best way for new listeners to find the show. This week's episode would not have been possible without Aaron Richards, the team at Penguin Random House, and of course, George Saunders. To purchase his new book, Liberation Day, and to learn more about the works referenced in this talk, visit our website at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode with George, I'd recommend our talks with other authors like David Sedaris, Margaret Atwood, Elizabeth Gilbert, Ocean Wong, Margot Jefferson, Malcolm Gladwell, and Richard Powers. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to purchase one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy. You can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. That's TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was engineered by Tim Moore out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs by Julius Chu. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with journalist Kara Swisher. Until then, stay safe. So long. And uh, if you haven't done so already, please vote. I'll see you back here next week. Bye-bye. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. 
NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. 